Hebrews chapter 9, the passage that was read for us uh, just moments ago. The, the song selection this morning as we've engaged in praise and prayer really encapsulates, summarizes the entirety of the book of Hebrews, but certainly this, this particular portion uh, of the letter, um, I really can't improve upon it. Let's pray. No, I, I, I can't honestly do that either because the God, God does say word to be word-centered, uh, which maybe we'll touch on that if I give myself time in a moment. Hebrews chapter 9 is, we're going to call this, this last half of it, uh, the last will and testament. Now, there's a couple of key phrases that help us uh, know the, the, we'll call them the limitations of the passage Chapter 9, verse 1 talks about the first covenant. The first covenant had regulations for worship. And then verse 15, where we begin today, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So we have these two halves within uh, chapter 9, the first covenant and the new covenant. It's interesting, the author of Hebrews doesn't say old covenant. Our Bibles say Old Testament. The word testament, covenant, is the same uh, term. And uh, we call it the old because we think of the new. But the author of Hebrews says the first testament, or the first covenant. Now, it's kind of vogue within Old Testament biblical studies to use the same lingo, the first testament, or the first covenant, because uh, we don't want to be, uh, I say we, not like I'm really one of them, but, but in general, we, we want to be politically correct and not say something is old when we're referring to the, the Jewish canon of Scripture, Right? Anyway, Hebrews is saying this is the first covenant under Moses, particularly, is what's given, is the, the manifestation of those, and now the new covenant in Christ. Well, how do we go about all this? This now talks about Jesus as a better mediator, a mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We've touched on that aspect several times, and we're, we're really rounding out now this and into chapter 10, this, this really doctrinal section of the letter to the Hebrews. And it's all been about Christ. And it's a bit re- repetitious, maybe you've sensed, but even as I grapple with it, and you grapple with it, the author of Hebrews, the preacher to the Hebrews, he wants us to grapple with it, and he knows that what's most important in our lives is the centrality of Christ as better than any and everything else in our lives. And he knows that we need to be reminded of it again and again and again and again and again. And he keeps cycling us through this, how better Christ is. In this sense, Christ is giving us, yes, a new covenant. And in this sense, the term is used of promise. Uh, verses 17, 15 to 17 are our first marker. Uh, in this passage. He is a mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. There's a lot of dramas that have been made based on this statement. How many mystery movies or whodunits are formulated around 
there's a will. And who gets the inheritance and the estate uh, after the person who made the will is gone, deceased. And perhaps we get a little impatient uh, in waiting for that person to go, and so we might hurry up the process of their absence. And hence begins the mystery of the whodunit and the murders and so forth. Well, because those inheritances cannot be divvied up to those who get it until that person's dead. Now, God made a covenant. And here the word will that you might have in your English translation is the same word covenant. Uh, and here there is with this, this will an eternal inheritance. Verse 15. An eternal inheritance. You know, much of our scuffle and so forth over inheritances, it, it, it's, it's interesting, sad, how people seem to change when it comes to giving up an inheritance or the distribution of a will. Uh, the even more sad reality is they haven't changed. It's the reality of who they really are coming out. Well, here is an eternal inheritance. Don't be scuffling around for something temporary or even partial. We have in Christ an eternal inheritance. Back up in uh, verse 12, it's called an eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. And verse 14, it comes through the eternal spirit. An eternal inheritance, which is an eternal redemption that comes by the eternal spirit. All right in the sequence of these verses. In the past, Hebrews has called this the world to come. He has called it the Sabbath rest for the people of God and the heavenly Jerusalem. He will call it in verse 12. There is indeed an inheritance. It is obtained by this will. Now, we tend to think of covenant in maybe the positive sense. It's often likened to a marriage covenant, a marriage ceremony. Indeed, uh, we are the bride of Christ. And when Christ inaugurated his new covenant, he's pledged his um, husbandry to his bride, to us as his church. It's a positive thing. Here we have it in, I suppose you might say, a negative thing, a death, a will, a testament. The two kind of come together in Paul's theology in Romans chapter 7. He brings this idea of, of a will, kind of, and a marriage covenant sorted together. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Hence, in our wedding vows, we say, till death do us part. Verse 4, Romans 7, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. The, the old marriage, the old covenant, terminates at the point of death, like a marriage. Romans 7, now in Hebrews 9, the old covenant, the will and testament, is culminated and comes the, the New Testament comes into effect upon the death of the old. Makes sense, doesn't it? 
basically set up our trusts and wills and estates all in this sort of way. A person makes a will, determines how to distribute the estate, but the inheritance doesn't go to anyone until the person dies. And Christ has here an eternal inheritance for his people. And it's spelled out in this new covenant. But it takes effect when? When he died. Christ indeed died. Now, we'll get to this. The amazing thing is he didn't stay dead. He rose again in order to enact the terms of the will. He's the mediator. He's not only the, what do we call it, the benefactor, but he's also the mediator who comes back and then distributes the inheritance. This makes him better. Better than any who have gone before and none can come after. This is the promise. Now, consider this just in as we think about, as we sung of grace and we, we think about the well, the sovereignty of God. The new covenant is not a second thought. God all the time understood and knew that the first covenant would come to an end, and it would come to an end by death. His own. He knew this from, oh, as Ephesians 1 says, before the foundations of the world. What an amazing thought. This plan, this scope of redemption is not an afterthought, not a second thought. It's not God wringing his hands and saying, oh no, look what Adam did. What do we do now? Father, Son, Spirit, let's get together, figure out a plan. No. Even Ephesians 1 says, before the foundations of the world. The book of Revelation says, the Lamb slain before the foundations of the world. No. God determined He was going to save. And then He determined to create. Not the other way around. This is alluded to in this portion of Hebrews. Hebrews 9. God always knew that His first will and testament would come to an end by His own death and that he himself would then enact this will and testament in a new covenant. But this one will never end. Christ died once. And now he brings an eternal inheritance, an eternal redemption by his infinite spirit. Well, verses 18 to 22 go on and we'll call this purification. These are the rites. The author of Hebrews now brings us back again. He's done this repeatedly, right? Brings us back again to the the Old Testament patterns of worship. The old forms of what's called the cultus. All the aspects of the pouring and sprinkling of blood and so forth. Verse 18 picks up, Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop 
sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the preacher Hebrews brings us back to this Old Testament pattern. He's probably expounding upon Exodus, maybe Exodus 24 or something of that matter. He's been thinking about the whole Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And we think, boy, that's an awful lot of blood. And it, it, it is an awful lot of blood. Now, also understand he would diffuse it with water. The water and the blood mixed. Which, by the way, footnote, may perhaps help us understand when John says water and blood are witness of the resurrection of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ. Perhaps there's a glimpse here of this sacrificial liturgical theology which Christ fulfills in the New Covenant. Well, that's a footnote. The blood is referred to six times in verses 18 to 22. There's a lot of blood. Now, under the Old Covenant, the, the worshiper can have that ritual purification. But it was all external, sprinkling on the outside. The people, the scroll, yeah, the, the scroll even of the covenant. The altars, the utensils, the bowls, the cups, sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle. I suspect those priests, if they could have looked into the future and see our sprinkler fire systems of today, someone would have been like the sons of Aaron and gotten really creative with worship and just diffused them us all at the same quick and easy. Can you imagine? It's really difficult to imagine this fumigation by blood. There was a constant flow of blood and a constant repetition of these sacrifices multiple times a day, morning, noon, and night. When you hear the psalmist say, I pray morning, noon, and night, he's talking about those three main sacrifices of the day. The blood is just continually spilled. And it's a constant reminder to the worshiper, we've got to do it again. It's never completely done. We'll come back tomorrow. We'll come back next year and do this all again. Imagine the priest himself doing this multiple times a day. Is there no end? Well, there is, but the end comes in the last will and testament. This external ritual cleansing actually doesn't do anything for the inside. And when we see this, and I suppose when we reflect upon it outside of this room, outside of this building, out in the world, and we talk about the bloodiness of our religion. We drink the blood. We eat the body. Yeah, it's to the point where even in the first century, the, the church was accused of cannibalism. 
it is bloody. And it was messy. And our Western sensibilities probably recoil from this as something something pagan. Even our neo-pagan society would perhaps think that this is pagan, ancient, backward thinking. But but think think even this with me. Even even the recoiling over this issue of blood, does that not in itself speak to how innately even the unbelieving world, the the non-Christian world, thinks about blood as something sacred? There's something we can work with as we share with our friends and colleagues and acquaintances about the necessity of blood, how sacred it is. Indeed, we see the spilling of blood and the blood cries out from the earth. And yet our world is lost and in darkness about the sacredness of blood. They, they intuitively know that it is and they'll, they'll respond and react to certain kinds of shedding of blood, but then others not so much. And so we think, turn things backwards at times. So we have millions of unborn children, those created in the image of God, their blood is spilt, and their blood cries out from the earth. God will vindicate them in his time and in his way. Till then, we need to keep speaking about the blood. For here, the text tells us, the life is in the blood. This is what Leviticus 17 11 is referring to God had provided blood for people. Yes, for life. Leviticus 17, 11. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It's the blood that makes atonement by the life. The blood equals life. And the shedding of blood equals death. And so when the blood is spilled, it means there is a death. And in our context, we're talking about a will and a testament. And the benefactor needs to shed his blood. He needs to die for the will to come into effect. And this he does. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. The crimson blood red is an image of the cost of sin. The wages of sin is death. Sin demands the shedding of blood. Now, think about this, even as we've read from Leviticus, it's not as if just blood itself is the the magical solution. The ex opero operato. No. If, If that were the case, then you wouldn't necessarily have to kill the sacrifice. You could just bleed them out little by little. I see people do that Every morning when I go to the west office at Panera, next door is the blood bank. 
And little by little, they bleed themselves out. You know, if, if the blood itself was efficacious, then all we'd need to do is just let out a little bit here and there and cover stuff. No, it's not the blood itself. It's that life is the payment for sin. And that life must be ended. And friends, every one of us are born in that Old Testament in the sense that we all are born in sin. We all have an innate propensity to not want to do God's ways. We have an innate desire to do our ways. And you know, the simplest illustration is, yes, indeed, the infant. Sometimes you, you, you know that the cry is for legitimate food and for legitimate needing to be held and legitimate needing to be changed. But other times you understand that that cry is simply to tell you, I'm the center of the world. Come over here. Yeah, we, we have that built-in, innate, self-centered sinfulness. And when self is the center, God is not. This is what we pray in Matthew 6. Hallowed be thy name. Central be thy name. Well, this paragraph leaves us than where the Old Covenant ends. It leaves us with the need for purification, which can be done partly externally, ritually, but actually has no internal permanent solution. Now, I want to put a footnote here, if I might. Let me see how I'm doing. Not good, but let's footnote. Next slide. I want to take just a, a moment or two to reflect upon the Old Testament pattern of worship and how it relates to us today. So we've come across these verses, Hebrews 8, 5, Hebrews 9. They serve as a shadow of the heavenly things, the old tabernacle, the old sacrifices and rituals. They're a shadow of what? Heavenly things. The realities are in heaven. Hebrews 9, even the first covenant had regulations for worship, which is symbolic for today, symbolic for the present age. Interesting. Even, again, Matthew 6, how would be your name? Your name be central. Where? Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Do you not suppose that if we have a, a pattern of what heavenly worship is like, how it's structured, that perhaps we should do that here and now? I would suggest yes. Well, here's what, here's what Leviticus 8 and 9 would look like if we... This is the Aaron's ordination. Next slide, please. The Aaron's ordination ceremony. Next slide, please. Leviticus chapter 8 and Leviticus chapter 9 put together, we have Aaron's ordination ceremony. God calls the assembly together 
The very first thing that he does then is he washes Aaron. He baptizes Aaron. That's, his, that's the beginning. That's the inauguration, initiation into his service. He's baptized. Then is the sin offering, the burnt offering, or the Holocaust offering, or the ascension offering, and then the peace offering, and then the benediction. Marvelous. This is, the, this is the shadow of the reality. This is a type of the fullness and truth, the way they worship in heaven. Now, it's a shadow, so it isn't perfect, as heaven is perfect. So, the sin is taken care of. And then the worshiper, the, that first sacrifice of sin offering... And then the whole burnt offering, the worshiper identifies with this Holocaust. The whole thing is consumed. No, you know, just vaporized by the heat and brought up as a pleasing aroma unto God. And you place your hand on the head of that animal and you identify with that offering. Now you are completely devoted up to God. They take the knife and slit the throat of the animal cut the animal up in all its parts and pieces and then redistribute those pieces on the altar in the shape and form of the animal and then wholly ascended up into heaven. Then after that offering comes the fellowship offering, the peace offering, and that one we get to eat together with the priest before the presence of God. Like any covenant meal would be. Abraham had covenant meal with the Lord. Moses had covenant meal with the Lord on top of the mountain. And so the worshiper, when the worship service comes to its close to its end, the community eats together. So th that's it. Now, here, the short of it, here are the movements of a worship service. I think you might have to hit each one to make them come out. Sorry. Enter, enter, enter. Maybe it's my fault. Okay. The calling, the confession, the consecration, the communion, one more, the commission. This, this follows that Old Testament pattern of how the sacrifices work. And this forms the structure of our covenant renewal worship together on Lord's Day morning. God calls his people. And we confess our sin. And then consecration by the Word. Remember Hebrews chapter 4 said, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's that priestly liturgical knife that cuts us up, fillets us, repositions us on the off altar of God, and then offers us up as living sacrifices, said Romans 12, unto God. That's the center point. We say we're Bible-centered. We say the Bible is our middle name, Grace Bible Church. And, and, and reality is the structure of our worship is Bible-centered. It's the Word of God that cuts us up, puts us on the altar, wholly consecrates us unto God. And then, then we share together in the peace offering that Christ says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink. He says, this is my body which is given for you. Eat. And every time you do, 
You remember the covenant I've made with you till I come again. But until I come again, he sends us out. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that I've commanded you. This is why we worship the way we worship. This is why we have the order that we do, because we believe in the Bible. And the Bible gives us all that we need for life and godliness. It tells us how we ought to worship God. Now, yes, we could do an entire treatise, probably dissertation on this topic. Some have. This is the pattern for our worship. Footnote is now ended. This portion leads us then to verse 23. There's this need for purification. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, just didn't complete it. It was partial. It was external. Verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for heavenly things to be purified. Not just the earthly things. The heavenly things needed to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. Christ has entered into holy places, not those made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We're reminded that that old system is an old ritual is simply a shadow, temporary. The reality is in Christ who entered the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly sanctuary, and sprinkled his, his blood in the heavenly places. We'll call this propitiation. The work of Christ to satisfy God the Father, to allow us to enter into his presence. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, prepared us for this. Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To satisfy God's need for justice and holiness, Christ took it. He bore it. And because of that, we can enter in. Now, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So God needed to take on flesh and blood in order for him to die and fulfill his own will and testament and thus give us the inheritance. And this Christ has done. Now, again, this is not so much a footnote, but a parenthesis. There is the real temple, the real sanctuary in heaven. Heaven is is a place. Well, that reminds me of a song. We won't go there. Though my compatriot is making me go there. Not making me, but enticing me to go there. Now you're all wondering, what in the world is he talking about? Heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I'm going to see my Savior's face because heaven is a wonderful place. going to go there. So, Revelation chapter 8 I hope you're going to go there. 
it is only through Christ that we can. Revelation 8, verse 3 uh, through 5. Just get this picture. An angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which, which with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer, filled it in, with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there was peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes, lightning, and earthquake. Now, I'm not saying that every time you have an earthquake or lightning that it must be God sending that censer bowl down, but one day he will, or at least the angel will at his instruction. But the, the point of this one is the golden censer, the golden altar, the incense... The altar it is in heaven. They worship in heaven with the real things. Revelation 11, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of His covenant was seen within the temple. The ark of the covenant The real Ark of the Covenant. It's not in some government storage warehouse somewhere. It's not in Area 53. The real Ark of the Covenant is in heaven, the heavenly sanctuary. So let's not go on any crusades looking for it. Revelation 15.5 I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. The heavenly realities in heaven. Now, it raises the question, doesn't it? We touched on this a bit in our theology course several months ago. What, what needs to be purified in heaven? Well, heaven does. It is, is not... Is not heaven where Satan reports? Job chapter 1? Is not where he gives an account of his shenanigans? In Job 1, aren't we, aren't we told that that's, that's where, where God either allows or disallows Satan to do what he does? So at least from that standpoint, yes, Wherever Satan is, needs to be purified. Now, what about our sins? Because that's the topic here in Hebrews, and that's what Christ is mediating. He's mediating our sins, not Satan's. But heaven is polluted. Heaven has been polluted by sin. And it's in those realities, heavenly realities, that Christ has ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, verses, verse 26 tells us that, that He has done this once for all time at the end of the ages. This takes us back to the beginning of Hebrews, chapter 1 and verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. We are in the last days. Now understand that the book of Hebrews was written in the first century. 
these last days are getting to feel a bit long for us, aren't they? We're talking about the ages. And we're in the last age. Epochs. Eons. And we're there. The plan of redemption is coming to its culmination. And Christ has brought in this age by His blood. Verses 27 and 28 talk about His coming. We call this His parousia. That's not actually the word that's used here. It's a technical word for coming. He says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Most of our world, I suspect, other than, other than sentimental thoughts and points, really has the, the philosophy of Epicurus. Epicurean philosophy is this. Actually, to quote Epicurus himself, death is nothing to us. When we exist, death is not. When death exists, we are not. All sensation and consciousness ends with death, and therefore in death there is neither pleasure nor pain. The fear of death arises from the belief that in death there is awareness. Epicurus deceptively tells us the cosmos, all that is and has been and ever will be. That's to quote Carl Sagan from the show Cosmos. And when you die, nothing. You just cease to exist. Nihilism. Vanish, von, dun, kaput. It's not the Bible's teaching. It's appointed for us once to die. Then it's not the end. Judgment. The world is deceived, I suppose in part by well-meaning philosophers, but deceived and deceived unto judgment. It is, it is our calling to go and make disciples, to tell these deceived people about truth, about reality, that indeed there is more to life after death. And you either have an eternal life with Jesus in the presence of God, or you will have an eternity apart from Him under His condemnation. Now, the word here, appear, is three times, and preachers love that. Many have noted this and built a great sermon. Verse, verses 24, 26, and 28. Christ appeared 
in the past. Verse 26. He has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin. Christ has come. Lived. Died. Buried. Rose again. And ascended to heaven. He came to deal with sin. Verse 24. Present. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies, but he has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ came to deal with sin. He's at the right hand of the Father to apply all of those benefits for us in God's presence. And verse 28, he'll come again. Christ, having been offered once, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. He's done that. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Maranatha. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You long for His appearing. That's, oh, I suppose the tagline of our movement from at least a generation ago, the Bible, the blood, and the blessed hope. The blessed hope of Christ's return. And we will be resurrected with Him and enter into glory. That's what's been accomplished. All that we see and experience now is a shadow of reality. We'll be clothed in light. Now we see in a mirror dimly. Then face to face. We shall behold Him. Now, friend, I, I, want, I want you to be there. I want you to, to enter into the Holy of Holies where Christ is. And it, it's not complicated. It's obviously costly. We, we've been talking about all that Christ is. But the transaction is simply to believe Him. To trust your life with Him. Him. Not you. Not circumstances. He has accomplished everything for God that you can't. As hard as you try, He has done it. So we can rest in Him as we trust in Him. Father, we ask that You would draw us, draw us into this beautiful presence. We ask that You would Grant us to believe that we would trust in the Lord with all our heart and not lean on our own understanding. And we would enter His presence. Lord, apply to us, oh, not the external fumigations of an old ritual system or even one that we devise of ourselves thinking if I just do this, I'll 
I'll be good enough or at least squeak by. No, there's no ritual, no behavior pattern that will qualify us. But you yourself took on flesh and satisfied the terms of the will. And so we we ask that you would grant us to believe this. And so be saved. Then may we be those who eagerly expect the return of Christ. That we would live victoriously as overcomers until He returns. And that when He does raise us to glory, we will enter into His blessed beauty and grace and worship Him. It is in Jesus' name we ask and pray these things. Amen.